Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we're continuing our watch through of The Magicians, looking at Season 1, Episode 12, 39 Graves. Britt, why don't you start us off with a recap of what happens in this episode? It opens with Julia and Katie finding a servant of Our Lady Underground, proving their worth and getting an invocation that comes with a warning. You can't unring a bell. So while all the free traders celebrate being able to contact God, Julia talks with Richard about still feeling some doubt, and then they have sexy times. Back at break bills, the atmosphere is tense in the aftermath of threesome, Penny doesn't know why everybody's acting weird, and reminds them that their lives depend on getting through the Netherlands before the beast kills them. Alice tells Quentin it's over and storms off. Penny follows her to help her get over it by having sex. So helpful. Common theme in this episode. Oh, you're having problems? This is the answer. Mm -hmm. So then more anger and tension ensues, but they bottle their emotions and travel to the Netherlands. Q falls back through the earth fountain to avoid a marauder attack. Others hide in the library, but are kicked out after Elliot reads the book of Mike's life and burns it. Luckily, Josh Hoberman from the missing Breakbills class helps them hide and form a new plan to get to Fillory without getting killed by the Marauders, which is promptly complicated by Elliot tripping on acid carrots. Margot saves him, though, with a gun she brought. Back on Earth, Q slips Dean Fogg truth serum and finds out they've been in a time loop to try to kill the beast and have died 39 times trying. Q learns that the thing Jane changed on this 40th reboot is Julia not being at break bills, so he goes to Julia, they reconcile, and they find a new way to Fillory with time travel to the 1940s. They follow young Jane Chatwin through a door to Fillory, and the episode ends with them gazing at Castle Whitespire. Yeah, quite a bit happens. Yeah, I mean, it's almost the the finale of the season so yeah everything is ramping up (laughs) absolutely yeah well we've got a lot to chew on so why don't we get into it what were your magic moments this episode well let's start with penny's magic moments my subsection that i created (laughs) i just love the little detail that after margot shoots one of the marauders Mm -hmm. he runs over and he sees if the person's still alive. Mm. And then when he kills Eve, because she gets in his way to get to the Fillory Fountain, he looks really pained about it. So I think it's pretty safe to assume that this is the first person he's killed. Mm. And he doesn't like that. And he doesn't take any of it lightly, even with the, the other person that Margot shot. Seeing that he reacts that way towards people who he doesn't even know who, yeah, have basically tried to attack him since he first ever met any of them, how much more, you know, would he feel with someone like Stanley, his mentor, killing himself right in front of him and, you know, the other deaths and stuff that he's seen. So I just thought it was a nice little detail. Yeah, and I think it helps explain why he chose not to lose his emotions, Mm. because if he's going to kill someone, I can imagine Penny wanting to do it in full Penny. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also just like great that 
the person who was so, I don't want to be involved, I'm not engaging with you, I'm going to get away from you because the beast is coming to kill you, <laughs> and yeah. always trying to separate himself from these people in this little band of people now trying to take down the beast. Now he's the one leading the charge. Mm -hmm. He's the one at the beginning of the episode. It's like, what is wrong with you people? And we need to do this or we're going to die. And mm -hmm. if you get lost in the Netherlands, you better be listening to what I'm saying because if you get lost, you're going to die. You know, and it's just like now he's fully engaging with this group right as it's falling apart. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> And so, yeah, it's, it's it's great to see him now jumping in, but obviously has good reason to be frustrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Additionally, why are Penny's relationships with everyone compelling? <laughs> <laughs> because, like, okay, I'm normally kind of iffy on hetero relationships in shows and stuff, mm -hmm. unless they're, like, really good. But as we talked about last episode... Ponderland ship mm -hmm. possibility. And now you have him. Penderland. Penderland. It, it is a pun. Ponderland, yeah, yes. yes. Pen Sunderland. Okay, yeah. Sunderland. Okay. And then in this episode, we have Alice and him. And it, it was just a really interesting interaction after they had sex. Him being like, you know, it, it's fine to be weird. Like, this is weird. We're weird. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Like, we're friends, right? It doesn't have to be a big deal for us moving forward to make our whole interactions change or, or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, he really calls her on her attitude of, you know, I'll never figure it out. And she's just like, no, sis, stop it. You can do this. Just figure it out. You know? Yeah, I, I love Penny calling people on their bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> he just he, he doesn't have time for it. He doesn't have the, the, the space for it in the midst of everything else going on for him. Totally. And, and I can imagine that for Penny, he is used to all of his relationships having a sense of intimacy that mm -hmm. makes things weird because he can hear their thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so he doesn't want to lose the relationship with the one person he respects just because of weirdness that he knows you can live through. Yeah, he already unfortunately incepted Quentin's sex dream. Mm -hmm. So he, he's been in plenty of weird positions. Absolutely. And seen them in weird positions. <laughs> hey, there's that too. Literally. like. No, I... I, I get it. Like sex positions. What? And I didn't get it. Thanks for clarifying. they brought him back from the Netherlands and they were having sex and he saw it. I wouldn't have remembered that without your Just want to make sure that you, you got the joke. Yeah. Yeah. It was so funny to begin with. Absolutely. Okay, we can continue. Oh, uh, uh, thanks. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> but then now we have another person. <laughs> I don't know why. All of the ships center around Penny. Like, there's some series, it's like all of the ships center around certain people. Mm -hmm. In Avatar Last Airbender, that's Zuko. Anybody can be with Zuko. Absolutely. And it's a fun ship to entertain. Well, the same thing for Penny, I think. Because when he's he has all of these books laid out on the ground of the library, and he's off by himself, Zelda, the librarian, comes over... And it was just a really inter interesting interaction. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, now I'm kind of shipping you too. Yeah, it made, me, it made me think that perhaps 
in a prior loop Mm -hmm. there was something between them because she already has a clear affection Mm -hmm. for him and she seems to be one of the people who's able to see through the loops Mm -hmm. and so yeah it definitely was just a, a, a really fascinating scene totally yeah she clearly has an affection for him and has this empathy seeing his pain Mm -hmm. and his frustration and not knowing what to do and having this wonderful gift but not having mastered it yet yet this is the time that he needs to have mastered it but that's just not how it works Mm -hmm. you know so she tells him Travelers have written our most precious books. And coming from her, you know how much she values books and knowledge. Like, that is such a big statement for her to say. And, like, what high esteem she holds travelers in, you know? Mm -hmm. And that once travelers master it, they have a wonderful time doing it. She says, if you can survive long enough, you'll get a handle on it. And so, yeah, I, I wonder if for her it... It has been a painful process to continually have Penny come into the library and only be able to give so much help before he dies and still wanting to give the help because you never know if maybe this is the time that he won't die. Mm -hmm. But knowing that it would take way longer than he has to be able to access the things he would need to to be more equipped to face the beast, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, just other really interesting interactions, and I I would also be okay with that ship. Mm-hmm. But moving away from Penny, for now, the Breakbill students prior that did the time magic named their endeavor Operation Die Fuhrer. Mm-hmm. Very good. <laughs> it's just a great, great title, mm-hmm. which I, I'm sad that Hitler killed them. <laughs> <laughs> And another thing is just, we have to talk about Elliot. Of course. Him holding on to his bottomless flask when Mm -hmm. Zelda was trying to take it away. Even when he doesn't have emotions, Mm -hmm. still logically not wanting to give it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then obviously their, their emotion bottles are broken. So when he goes to look up Mike's book, which he says is really more like a novella, It's just so sad. It's just, like, such a great moment. I mean, also hilarious that he's like, he was a Republican, can you believe it? Yeah. (laughs) But he's like, the worst part is he was actually happy in his life. Yeah. And it's my fault that that's done. And it it, it is to some degree, but the Beast is the one who picked him, Mm -hmm. right? So the Beast is the one who ended that happy life that he was having. So, yeah, it was the Beast's original choice, but for Elliot, he feels like it was his choice that took his life away. And it was, to some degree, but not entirely. He has some portion of responsibility here, but he doesn't have the only responsibility, and he hates himself for it. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's it's really sad to see. It is. But... Also, so well done, because if you're there, how could you not go read the book? Like, even if you know that it's not the healthiest thing for you to do. I mean, Elliot's definitely not going to draw that line in his current headspace. It's not like he's doing anything that's very healthy for him. Yeah, but I mean, I think it would be really sad if somebody wouldn't want to read it. Mm -hmm. Because, like, even though it would be painful to read, it's a way of 
acknowledging the life that you took, that you ended, it's easier to not want to know. Mm-hmm. It's easier to not see the person that you killed as a whole person. And he doesn't want to do what's easy. Like even before, when he first found out about Mike and wanted to go talk to him, and Sunderland was like, is this really going to help? And he's like, I'm not here to feel better. He's here to like find out the truth. He's here to, to learn about the situation. And I think that's his same choice here. It's not to feel better. It's to know more about this person who was an important person in his life, even though it wasn't him, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful moment and it's a beautiful part of Elliot that he is compassionate and he does care, even though as he's trying to tune out a lot of his emotions with drugs and alcohol, but he doesn't want to tune this out, mm-hmm. which is recognizing that this person was a person and killed them yeah but what about you what are your magic moments well for one i just want to call out that first scene where penny is trying to explain the plan and he's upset that people aren't paying attention and i love how they visualize them not paying attention by showing the images of what happened both in Mm. the threesome and then in the fight between Alice and Quentin. And so we get this visual expression of how they can't pay attention to Penny because this is what they're thinking of. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't cut from Penny's audio. His audio keeps going over those images. Mm -hmm. So we really get to see what it's like for them to, yeah, just not be listening to him. Just a really, really great directing choice and uh, use of the medium. Totally, yeah. And then I just had a couple Margot points, actually, that I really loved. Similar to Elliot wanting to hold on to his flask while he was without emotions, the fact that Margot still wants to correct her name when the librarian calls her Janet. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd think, again, that that might be an emotional kind of issue, but no, she has logical reasons of how she identifies. Like, it is something that is important to her beyond just a kind of emotional thing, which I think is important when we talk about how people choose their names and choose their identities and how they want to identify. I thought that was a really cool moment. Mm. Yeah, it was a cool little moment too, just because in the books, Margot's character's name is Janet. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a... A little wink to that. A little wink to that, but also a potential indication to reinforce, again, this idea of the omniscience of the library. Mm -hmm. It doesn't only know the show, it also knows the literature that the show is based (laughs) on, you know? Yeah, it has meta-knowledge. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So great. That is really good. (laughs) Then also just that when they get their emotions back, Margot yells out, I planned my entire wardrobe around that bottle, (laughs) which is such a Margot thing to do as they're planning to go into battle. You know, we also learned that she brought a gun. So she's got all sorts of different preparations that she's doing, Mm -hmm. but that one of them is, well, if I want to be wearing this bottle, I want to look good while doing it. Yeah. She's probably like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die looking great. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So just more examples of how Margot is such a delightful character (laughs) and just so entertaining to watch. But let's head into our next segment, Setting and Society. What did you bring to talk about? So one thing that I was thinking about is kind of like 
red herrings, the fallacy where you're trying to distract from the real issue or the real conversation by throwing something else in. Mm -hmm. And in this particular case, Alice is doing this with feminism in a way that's like annoying to me because like both, you know, obviously me and you are strong feminists. And after Alice has sex with Penny, Quentin says, I didn't think you had that in you. And she says, don't shame me. And it has nothing to do with him shaming her. Like, mm-hmm. And she knows that. She's smart enough to know that this doesn't have anything to do with that. But like, that's throwing this fallacy, this red herring in to try to make it distract from the real issue, which is her having sex with Penny out of spite. Mm-hmm. It just really bugs me when people do things like that, especially when it's on issues that are important, like really societally important, where real oppression happens and where slut shaming is a real problem in our world, you know? Mm -hmm. And then like just using it to try to absolve yourself from some of the guilt that you should feel for being spiteful, Mm -hmm. you know? If it was a different circumstance, it's not that she would need to feel guilty about it, but she should hear because she was doing it to punish this person that she's supposed to care about. At least in part, yeah. Yeah. And so it was just frustrating me because Quentin was totally right in him saying, I made a mistake and you aimed a weapon. Mm-hmm. And he did make a mistake. And we we could definitely talk about feminism and misogyny and stuff when it comes to men cheating on women. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But like, that's not the conversation that they were having. And that's this conversation they definitely should have. But for her to try to like justify herself by being like, you shouldn't be upset with this because we broke up a minute ago (laughs) Mm -hmm. and because I'm a woman and I have autonomy over my own body like which yes those are good things but she was just trying to distract from the issue that Mm -hmm. he was trying to bring up was you hurt me because you purposefully wanted to hurt me and you knew exactly what you were doing when you were doing it yeah which I think is is a clear distinction between their actions yeah I mean that's the thing like Quentin did wrong things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He cheated on his girlfriend and hurt her through that. Mm-hmm. Also had sex with someone who literally had passed out from alcohol mm-hmm. a little bit before. So, no, bad choices being made here. At the same time, when he was doing it, it wasn't purposefully to hurt Alice. It was out of negligence yeah inconsideration but yeah not targeted and who knows maybe he did think of her and it's like oh i probably shouldn't do this and chose to do it anyway but yeah it wasn't trying to be a weapon Mm -hmm. uh it was him being selfish and careless and unhealthy not vindictive exactly exactly though i think where we really do see misogyny coming in is when Quentin directs his anger at the threesome, at Margot alone, mm-hmm. not at himself, which obviously he should be directing most of his anger at yep. for his own decisions. And also not really at Elliot, who he only tells that, like, this isn't a joke. Yeah. And 
maybe part of that is because, yeah, Elliot was passed out before somehow he woke up and got involved. Or maybe part of it, yeah, is just he's blaming Margot because it really does feel like men blaming a woman for tempting them into a situation, which is sexist and disgusting as well because it's like no you you made these choices she made these choices elliot semi made these choices Mm. where consent is not really something we could maybe say he had considering his um inebriation and you could maybe even say the same thing about Margot, Mm -hmm. you know and quentin and quentin yeah but it's possible with the whole magic aftermath i think elliot's in the most vulnerable state that Mm -hmm. we see yeah, con- consent gets tricky in those kinds of situations, but they're not even engaging with that. Mm-mm. Well, yeah, and he says, you two ruined my life. And yeah. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess he, he was giving a little blame to Elliot, but like his anger yeah. was towards Margot, which is completely inappropriate and frustrating. Absolutely. And yeah, he would rather argue with them about that than like talk to his girlfriend about the situation and apologize and try to discuss what happened. Yeah. You know? <laughs> there are plenty of times, Alice, to call Quentin on his lack of feminism, but that one that you were doing wasn't really a valid time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm. But what about you? What were you noticing about setting in society? I really want to talk about Our Lady Underground and Faith. Because mm. um, I think there is a lot of really fascinating elements of that that we're seeing kind of come to fruition in this episode. I've been wondering over the last few episodes, as they, they start talking about having faith in Our Lady Underground, to what extent they can have faith when they are seeing miracles occur. There's clearly a question about whether the gods are dead, whether they left, whether they're available. Mm-hmm. Whether they would answer them in particular. Exactly. But when they are seeing miracles occur, I think that the term faith isn't always as applicable as we think about faith in our society. Right? Belief perhaps might be something different. Or, you know, I don't know. It's just when there is proof, is that faith? I don't know the answer to that, but I find it just kind of an interesting question that is coming up here. And I feel like this episode brings, for me, the most interesting element of that faith, which is that if Julia has faith that she exists, she believes that she gives a crap about the things that are happening in society. And so it's not just faith that she exists, but that she exists and she operates in certain ways according to certain moralities. Mm -hmm. And I think that is an important element of faith. In my own history with religion and things like that, one of the ways that I've naturally often found myself thinking about a possible higher being is that my faith in them would be important to the extent that they are a compassionate and loving being, not a being that would, for example, hate people based off of the color of their skin or their gender or anything else, you know? Be really preoccupied with genitals. Exactly. And so, yeah, I just, I really found kind of myself drawn to that moment in this episode. Well, yeah, it's interesting because it could definitely be like, Julia thinks, no, I I had a dream. Mm. This thing didn't really happen. There wasn't this vision or this goddess didn't come to me in this dream. It was just a dream because this is what we've been thinking about recently. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that there could definitely be some faith elements there, despite them having experienced these more quote unquote supernatural things. Mm -hmm. But I like your point about it's not just about faith that something exists, but also comes with that the belief about what that something would be like. Mm -hmm. That it's good. That it, mm -hmm. yeah. Rather than, you know, <laughs> we've had very different examples of gods throughout human history in what people think that they're like. Mm -hmm. Reading some ancient Greek stuff, I was always so annoyed. Like the Iliad, I'm just like, oh, these gods are just so just like humans but with more power mm -hmm. <laughs> so they're just as flawed and just annoying and fickle yeah and like vindictive and you know all of these Rapey things in zeus's case uh, yeah that like you just don't want your gods to be yeah. <laughs> right uh and then there are other gods that could be like entirely benevolent or or they could be something that's more like connecting everything or you know there, there's just very different ideas and so, yeah, inherent with believing, if you believe anything else exists, is a belief about what the nature of that existence would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and on that point, I find the nature of Our Lady Underground also very interesting. Mm. I wish, frankly, that they went more into who she is as a deity than the show really has time for. Totally. The books certainly do engage with that a little bit more. But from what we've gotten so far... We see her as a black woman, often depicted in kind of Christian-like imagery of saints. Yeah, I find that a really interesting starting point that we can kind of build off of our own ideas, because Our Lady Underground really kind of connects to this idea of the underclass that we were talking about in previous episodes, that in some cases supernatural beings, but also just people exist in these hierarchies. And that many people are oppressed, are marginalized. And for me, it very much looks like Our Lady Underground is a kind of representation of a deity for those people or for those beings. That is, in the books, made a little bit more explicit. I think that it's a good thing that we see her embodied by a woman of color as a group that is absolutely marginalized in our society mm -hmm. and has a long history of that. And so I think that, that that is really apt. And then we see when when Julia and Katie go and meet her apostle that it's a Latinx man. Here I, I find some really interesting elements of representation. Um, as a mixed-race Latinx person myself, I know the first time I watched, I was kind of thrown by how he will often throw out Spanish language in the middle of his sentences or for certain exclamations. But for me, at least, it feels very exotifying in especially how he uses terms like chicas to refer to the women. It feels a lot like he is a character who is trying to be shown to be Latinx rather than one who is written by or, or, or trying to trying to represent an authentic version of that. Mm. And if it's meant to show, look, her followers are people of color. Her followers are multiracial or are immigrant communities or are communities that, you know, are not just the kind of white majority of the United States, uh, mm -hmm. but in a place like New York would be more diverse than that. I think that's a good thing. But the way that it kind of ties into his 
creepiness, as they describe him, <laughs> and the way that he kind of, yeah, uses gendered and maybe even sexualized language at times when he's in Spanish. It just feels a little off to me mm-hmm. um, as, as I watch. So, yeah, I just think that that element of Our Lady Underground and, and his representation as a character who's connected to her brings up some interesting gendered and racial representation issues that I just find fascinating to, to think through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we should probably move on to our next segment, Themes and Schemes. What did you bring? Well, okay. So if we're talking about schemes, if we're talking about some of the plot things going on, we have to talk about the time loops. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) It's such a great thing that they've given little hints about Mm -hmm. before. I mean, the entire thing started with the hint about... We need to get them together. Exactly. Especially him. Something about being early. Yeah, yeah. A scene that I had no recollection of when we started (laughs) this podcast. Exactly, it's the first time you're watching it. It's like, oh yeah. And then when Penny first gets to the Netherlands, Zelda's like, you're late, you know? And Mm -hmm. so so there's, there's things that have given us hints, but to really get into it, it, it's just a great conceit that you find out about the time loops, but you find out about the time loop at the point where you can't go back in exactly. to the loop because now Eliza's dead. And so this is the last time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, the first time I watched it, I was just like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, this adds more to the world. Oh, yeah. Time loops are fun. But thinking through it for the podcast and, and thinking through how it's done in this episode and in, in this show... I think it's fascinating because most time loop films, TV shows, etc. use time loops as a way of removing stakes from the narrative. Oh, the time loop is just going to repeat again. So you can explore, you can do things differently. You can, you know, you don't have to worry about the consequences of your actions the same way. And this does the opposite. Mm-hmm. You're on the journey with the people finding out they're in the time loop and then they keep changing things until they finally are able to get out of it. Exactly. Here you find out, oh, you've been in a time loop and you're not anymore. <laughs> there, yeah, so there, there's no going back here. This adds stakes of saying there's no safety net. And in fact, we've had to use a safety net 39 times because this is so dangerous. And we don't have it anymore, <laughs> you know? So yeah, it just increases the idea of the danger and all of the things that have been devoted to fighting the beast thus far, which is just excellent storytelling. Absolutely. And the fact that, you know, you get Fogg's anger sometimes mm-hmm. at Eliza and just like, this isn't my problem. I'm just supposed to be a dean of this school. And I'm like roped into this thing where people keep dying and you have to, you know, like all of these times and the frustration of, like he said, he's strong enough to be able to detect that he's in a time loop, mm-hmm. but not to change the outcome thus thus far at least you know and just that he's been stuck in this frustrating loop all of this time too and it also i don't know i think it could bring some interesting context to him telling quentin we hope that you won't need your antidepressants here Mm -hmm. again not, not a good message but if you're thinking about in the context of once you go to Fillory or different things happen to you, if you're just suddenly off your antidepressants, like that can really 
screw with you, you mm-hmm. know, it can make you incredibly more vulnerable if it's just like this cold turkey. Suddenly I don't have my pills and I'm lost in the Netherlands for months or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And so I, I wonder if that could have been an element in this kind of like manipulative way of the Dean trying not to have him be more vulnerable in that that one particular way i don't know but it's something that i definitely thought about after you know watching it uh, a couple times Mm -hmm. yeah or there was a time when they didn't do that and quentin wasn't able to learn battle magic or he just wasn't able to gain certain kinds of skills or knowledge or or didn't have the motivation to because Mm -hmm. of differences in his brain chemistry i don't know it at least, I think, provides a better possible explanation than just Fogg has awful views on mental health. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. And knowing that there's so many times into the loop also helps with not just being like, well, why don't you just tell them that they're in this loop? They probably did that the first, like, mm-hmm. five to ten times. <laughs> and that made things worse. So now they're not going to tell them and they're just going to try to push them in very specific, you know, little ways. And, you know, just, like, trying a new change every time. And it's it's great to see that every time is different, but also the people are still themselves. So... 27 out of the 40 times Quentin has slipped Dean Fogg true serum. Yep. <laughs> that means other times he either wasn't able to, he didn't think of it, he died before he could, you know, so it it's saying, showing that there's some consistencies in their personality and their thought processes and things like that, but also the environment, other actions of other people affect Literal manipulations, the yeah. Yeah, so that people are also reacting to other people. Mm-hmm. And as you interact with people, students that aren't even involved in this quest to kill the beast, you know, mm-hmm. uh, could have a role to play in the outcome. Yeah, Star Trek girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. One loop, Quentin didn't... Gretchen, I think Gretchen. was her name. <laughs> Quentin didn't give up his letter Nimoy tapes. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> then he just got into a habit of listening to those again, and it... His vinyls. Get it right, Yeah, Chris. I'm so sorry. His vinyls. Uh, yeah, anyway. It's really important to Quentin that you get it right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But yes, just a great, great element to add to the show. Love me a well-done time loop. Absolutely, so. yeah. And here it really is. And And yeah, I still think that this is a moment where... The show highlights how it is doing some innovative things with settings and tropes and other kinds of things that are that have been used before. Mm-hmm. You know, we know what a time loop is. We know what magic is. We know what multiverse is, you know, like all these other kinds of things. The characters themselves often comment using... Groundhog Day. Exactly. <laughs> that, using that was a point references. of pride for the team not Very to have good. seen. So good. But that the show is willing to... Yeah, innovate in these ways, in ways that the book didn't, because this time loop thing is not done the same way in the books at all. Not at all. And so, yeah, seeing that is just uh, chef's kiss. Very good. Yeah, love it. Also, just quickly with some themes, I think that we have the 
theme of power coming back again that this servant of the Our Lady Underground he sees in magicians. Because mm-hmm. he says, magicians, that's all you ever want, power. Yeah. And Julia pushes back against that. She says, I'm trying to do what I'm supposed to. Sure, I have wanted that in the past, but now I'm just trying to do good in the world. I I think it's a great thing that this servant of a god notes about magicians with distaste, you know? Mm -hmm. He's probably been approached before by magicians. If you just want power, then go away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not on brand for our for our lady or maybe it's just annoying to him because he has to keep dealing with people who just want and want and want things from people so again it's showing this counter to the kind of dean fogg mayakovsky philosophy and marina philosophy in regard to magic uh that julia and richard and the free traders really do believe in this other way of looking at magic and that isn't just about accumulating more power for yourself and i think it's also great that when this guy is confronting her about that julia acknowledges her privilege Mm -hmm. because he asks her why do you deserve to see our lady julia's response is saying I know I'm privileged and I've done some really stupid things and I've been through nothing compared to some of my friends, but I'm trying to do good and that's the reason I'm here. And so it's not about deserving it. And I think that that's kind of a theme that has been kind of floating around very, very much in the background, like the door opening for them to go into Fillory. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily about you deserving it. Uh, The fact that Penny goes there before Quentin, you know, it's not about deserves. There are other factors at play here. I think Julia very wisely knows that, that she doesn't deserve this, but she's asking because she wants to do something better with the privilege that she's been given. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that it's this attitude that, in my own personal opinion, (laughs) makes Julia better than Quentin and Alice. Because they don't always acknowledge their privilege. Mm -hmm. And that other people around them have gone through harder things than they have. Even with some of the horrible things that have happened to Julia. And some of the horrible things that she's been a part of. She still recognizes her privilege and doesn't treat herself like a victim. Yeah, and I think it it shows so much of the growth that she's gone through this season, which is growth that no other character has gone through, I think, as much as. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I I kind of love that having this time loop situation be revealed here is really putting Julia's journey front and center here Mm. because... Before, it's like, oh, okay, so the Beast comes in, episode one, we know that we're building to defeating the Beast. And that's what the Breakspills kids have been dealing with. Mm -hmm. And Julia's very much been on the outside of that. But now we know that Julia was the thing that Jane changed last. 
So that makes her journey so much more important yeah. now in, in the plot of the entire story. That's a great point. Yeah. But what about you? What are themes and schemes you wanted to talk about? Yeah, a theme I saw from this episode is how emotions make these characters foolish. Because <laughs> I find it interesting for a show which has stated in the past that pain makes them powerful. I don't think that this contradicts that, but I think that it makes it more complicated because being powerful does not entail, like you were talking about, using that power for good. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we see them using both magic and other choices that they make, sometimes in very bad ways, in very <laughs> foolish ways, because they're emotional and because they're in pain. Obviously, we see Alice wanting to hurt Q. She herself recognizes this when she uses a bottle again because she says, right now the way I'm feeling would make us all die. She recognizes how her emotions are dangerous to the group at this point. And then Elliot burns the book, getting them cast out of the library back mm-hmm. into danger. He takes the the acid carrot, which <laughs> leads to them being found and Marco having to kill someone. A lot of our group, I think, in this episode are are making these choices, and last episode, clearly, out of where they are emotionally, and those are choices that are ultimately harmful. Mm-hmm. These are characters who are very powerful. They're magicians. They have now studied battle magic. And I think this continues on from last week's. They had to get rid of their emotions in order to do battle magic. Mm-hmm. And... I think just seeing how these characters are on this quest, right? On this journey to Fillory, fighting an evil being that wants to kill them all and are so preoccupied with the pain they're going through, it in a way kind of supports this idea that their power comes from pain because their pain is so central to what they're experiencing. It's not this fairy tale that Quentin has imagined of going to Fillory would just be, oh, you get to Fillory and things are okay and you get to explore all these magical things. You don't have to worry about all the pain of life, the depression, the Mm -hmm. feeling bad about life. And it's just not the case here. Yeah, it's showing that you can't escape. Mm -hmm. Even the things that you think that you can use as escapism from your problems. like You literally take them with you. Yeah. So let's head into our next segment from another point of view. Whose perspective did you bring to discuss today? So I was thinking a lot about Julia, not only like what we were talking about with her being now plot central, but just as she is hesitant and like constantly questioning things, everyone else is celebrating and drinking and having fun. And she's, she's not sure. Then Richard is talking to her. I love what he says. Don't lose that bite that you have. That thing where you want to puzzle everything out. He says that angry, questioning people, he thinks, shut up too fast. Maybe that's why the gods left and didn't care about interacting with humans anymore because people lost the fire to keep yelling the gods' names, which I just thought was a really, really interesting bit. Uh, And it was kind of bringing me back to when I was studying in undergrad and as I studied history, but then got a minor in biblical studies, 
studying biblical studies was very unraveling for me because you you actually study things. Uh, you study the context, you study translation ideas and how many errors their translators made per page of the Bible. So people who have an idea of inerrancy, it's like, ah, no. <laughs> uh, which, side note, was amazing. One of my professors, when he was talking about translations, and on his slide talking about that, he had purposely made a typo. <laughs> like, I don't know if any of you noticed it, but That's great. this is an example of that. And so as I was like having this paradigm shift as well as just being disturbed at some of the violence in the Bible, as well as like oppressive ideas that are in there as well, I did this independent study with one of my favorite professors on war and violence in the Bible. I couldn't get over that. Like that was one of the major roadblocks for me for being mm. able to be like, would I even call myself a Christian anymore? Can I even believe the messages? Mm. You know, taking historical fact out, out of that. And for him, my professor, it's, it stuck with me to this day that he was like, there are a few verses in the Bible that are the only reasons why I've stuck with Christianity. And one of them is Job. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with the book of Job, part of Hebrew poetical wisdom literature, and it's this guy loses everything. Like he's trying to follow God, worship, you know, do these different things. And then like all of his kids, his wife die. And all of his agriculture, like everything is ruined. He's just like, why? I've done everything that you were asking me to do. How can this happen? And so mm -hmm. my professor was like, Job essentially calls down God to stand trial for God's actions. Mm. And it's that fire. And then another time someone saying like, will the God of justice pervert justice? And so for my professor, he was saying, it's these people who are standing there yelling up at God, angry, that were left in the, these texts to be like, no, we should be doing this too. Like, mm. these aren't stories just about a God that you have to, like, just obey in a subservient way that never questions anything. You can have your brain turned on while following this, and that will mean that you question things. That will mean you take hard, critical looks at things, and maybe you leave it. But also, maybe you don't, and that God would love that too. Mm. That like you're the one yelling. And so I just kind of really liked that Richard was talking about this idea. Julia, don't lose the thing that would make you say that God's an asshole. You know, mm -hmm. like don't lose that thing. You don't mm -hmm. have to abandon all doubt. Keep questioning it. So yeah, I was I was just loving that that was encouraged in her. Yeah. Because that so often is not encouraged in whatever setting it could be, especially for women. <laughs> and I think we really see that Julia, particularly in this episode, comes to just like such a good place for her mm -hmm. that she's able to forgive Quentin when he shows up. She literally learns that she was right. She would have gotten accepted to break bells. She is, quote unquote, good enough to be there. Yeah. And Quentin was being an asshole to her just because he could. Mm -hmm. And 
she has that vindication and yet she yeah chooses to forgive and not hold on to the anger or be remad <laughs> <laughs> then that lets her reconcile and then go to this like playful place mm. of showing the map they made under the table and that she still has it and she's like are you saying we could, you know are you asking me if i want to go to fillory with you and then like right before they go through the portal to fillory he's like should we go and she's like why yes martin mm-hmm. and, you know and it's just like quoting something from the book and she's yeah just able to be at this really good place even though things have been difficult and she's fought really hard to get to a better place for herself and to treat others around her in better ways yeah and own up to what she's done too like she says what i did with that spell was stupid and vindictive yeah from there yeah she's able to play and i i really enjoyed seeing that moment for them that they're able to both just be excited about going to fillory because Mm -hmm. this is something that they've loved for so long and I think in most part, that's because of the work that Julia's done. She she wrote that immense letter. She reached out. You know, she's continually tried to do healthier, kind, compassionate things. Yeah. But she's also evolved in her ability to do that, where it's not a, I messed up, but so did you. It's mm-hmm. a, I messed up in these ways, and I'm sorry. Yeah. And she still acknowledges that he messed up too, mm-hmm. but like the way that she's communicating is taking responsibility and it is showing that she has grown. And yeah, that that's really, really important. And I did appreciate also that conversation that you mentioned between her and Richard. Still kind of skeeved out a little bit by them getting together. Just oh, yeah. not a fan, yeah. really. But yeah, he's too old for her. That conversation at least like raised him in my esteem because he is seeing the things about Julia that make her special that make her a great character it's not just that she's a young attractive woman but Mm -hmm. there's other things there too so the fact that he was able to point those out made me feel a little better but but still still, yeah what about you what perspective do you want to bring I want to talk about Margot let's do it wasn't Penny this time it wasn't no uh Because, as you mentioned, she is called out at the beginning of the episode by Quentin, and she strikes back in a way that I think not only is hilarious, but also is so Margot. She says, people don't get to be mad at me because they have sex with me. You know, they should be thanking me. And this is mirrored with her at the end of the episode after she shoots the person to save Elliot. Everyone's kind of looking at her, and she says, you should be saying, thanks, Margot. And you're welcome. She does not have time for their judgment. And it's one of the things that I love about Margot, that she is principled in her own way. I kind of notice in this episode that Margot, similarly to Penny, doesn't really have time for, for nonsense. And I think generally she cares about the outcomes of actions. She cares about what's going to happen. And she doesn't care about niceties or decorum. (laughs) She does not. (laughs) No. So, yes, she brought a gun to Fillory because she wanted to be able to protect herself in case something happens and she's not able to do battle magic like what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Penny's the only one of the group that could do battle magic. He needed to use that. But everyone else would have been in trouble 
sure, she heard them talk about, you shouldn't bring a gun. But then she said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And (laughs) her doing so saved them, saved Elliot at the very least. So, yeah, I just, I think that in her mind, I can understand why she cares less about these smaller implications than she does about, at the end of the day, Elliot's going to be alive, or I'm going to be alive, because of these choices that I've made. Yeah, she doesn't just go along with what the group thinks is best if Mm -hmm. she thinks something different. And she doesn't feel the need to convince them otherwise. She's Mm -hmm. just like, well, I'm going to bring this because I think that this is the smartest thing to do. Yeah, exactly. And she doesn't stand for their judgment. She just says, you're welcome. Mm -hmm. You know? Would it maybe have been better to bring a taser? Oh, certainly. I, I, you know, a tranquilizer gun. <laughs> you know, the, the pacifist in me is like, ah, uh, <laughs> but I, I understand her perspective. Exactly. And then the other thing I was thinking about with Margot is, of course, her relationship with Elliot. Yes. And, you know, even that moment with the gun, she's the one who sees that Elliot is tripping. Mm-hmm. She's the one who asks him if he's okay, looks back for him. No one else noticed. And it shows yeah. how much she cares. And I think we see that a lot in this episode. She says, when she sees him reading the book, why are you torturing yourself? She, in this case, doesn't really care, you know, about your points earlier about how it's probably the the way of giving respect to Mike's life. She cares about how it's going to affect Elliot. Yeah. I think that that is so important for her. She is probably there because of Elliot. Sure, she likes Quentin, and maybe sees this as something that could harm her, especially after those eight different probability spells. But I think that she initially got on board because of Elliot's encounter with the Beast. Because she wasn't on board when it was just Quentin and Alice and Penny and Katie. It wasn't until then that she really became a core part of the group. And as I was thinking about her and how she is still worried for Elliot and frustrated with Elliot for making bad choices. I can also imagine that she's additionally frustrated with herself and with the situation because of the threesome. That had in it a kind of intimacy with Elliot. It was a physical intimacy, obviously, but she was still also overwhelmed by emotions. And we saw last episode that her emotions had to do with their relationship and how she thought it was lacking. Mm -hmm. And so I could imagine Amargo that night you know, having the emotions flooding her, maybe seeing that kind of intimacy as a way of getting close to Elliot when she hasn't been able to be close to him. And then the next day when they're all kind of thinking through with a clear head with frustrations at themselves and each other over the night before, she could also be just frustrated the fact that that was temporary, that that was a distraction, that that was a physical thing and that's all. And that they finally had some kind of closeness and intimacy, but ultimately it wasn't meaningful. It didn't help things. And maybe even hurt things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and the whole way, probably, that the threesome started was from an intimacy, an, an emotional intimacy she was sharing with Quentin, talking about her fears about Elliot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's one of the primary things on her mind, this worry and also frustration with Elliot as she, yeah, she sees him doing things that she knows are going to make him feel even worse than he currently does. And when you want your 
friend to survive this experience, not just this experience with the beast, but life and, and where he's at. Yeah, it, it would be very frustrating. And even though she loves Elliot so much and she's so concerned about him, she doesn't like baby him. You know, she, yeah. she doesn't, uh, she, she'll still push back against him. She'll still show that she's frustrated after he's like, oh, you saved my life, you know? Mm -hmm. And and she's like, yay, you live to drink another day. Mm -hmm. Like, she's not just going to be like, oh, he's happy because I saved his life, you know? Like, she's, this is what you're doing with your life. She'll try to support him, but she's also going to call him on his bullshit, too. Mm-hmm. Which is a good friend. Yeah. Should she be more sensitive to the book and Mike and stuff. Yes. Absolutely. She's a good friend to Elliot for her personality, but mm -hmm. she's not always what Elliot needs, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because in a way, Margo is one of the least superficial characters mm. because she's not going to be taken by a momentary happiness when she recognizes that wider issues are still there. Mm-hmm. And yet she's also the character who is worried about her outfit earlier in the episode, you know? So it's like, and she's presented, I think, early in the series as this kind of vain, superficial type of character. But we see here that she's also very savvy, very understanding of situations in their full context. And just for me, as someone who is so not Margot, uh, <laughs> who does care about decorum probably too much at times... I am a bit inspired by her focus on what happens rather than how it happens mm -hmm. and think that I could probably move further in that direction with some of my own choices. I think Margot of, of the main cast is probably the character you are least like. Yeah, I don't know how if I'm much like Julia or Katie. But more so than Margot. I mean, I guess that's true. <laughs> I'm just saying she's the least. Yes, that's that's true. Uh, <laughs> you would go into a slave-like situation to save your mom. That's true. Uh, you would try to use magic to help people and recognize your privilege. That's true. You would not coordinate your outfit around a bottle. <laughs> no, I would not do nor that. Nor... If somebody was blaming you for something, just be like, no, you don't get to be mad at me for having <laughs> sex with me. You can thank me. Yes, that's the least me thing. Exactly. <laughs> so that, I'm, ju I'm just saying yeah, the least you. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I've convinced you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let's revisit the title of this episode, 39 Graves. I love it. Yeah. If you didn't know prior to to watching it about the time loops mm -hmm. you wouldn't know it wouldn't you'd be like oh no what's this massacre or, you know whatever but to have the title be there and then there's the reveal about the time loop and that this has all happened 39 times before just excellent it's very evocative mm -hmm. it's really yeah it's 39 of your own graves mm -hmm. like it's it's a great great title yeah Okay, well, I think that will wrap up this week's discussion. So what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we will be watching the final episode <gasps> of the season, which is called Have You Brought Me Little Cakes? Oh, very dramatic. <laughs> Where we'll see revelations and confrontations and godly emanations. <laughs> 
lot to look forward to. Also, we will mention there is a content warning for rape. You'll know when it's going to happen, so you can skip that part if that's what you're feeling on the given day that you're watching. Just wanted to remind the audience. Okay, well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. Please follow us on social media, and we hope that you'll join us on Patreon so that you can get access to all the things that we're doing for our supporters, including our monthly meetups. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out!